I'm trying to find guys that will lead in the moment. And then what I'll do after they lead is I'll call them out about their leadership in public and say, that was leadership right there. What did he say in the huddle? And we'll talk about body language. We'll clip body language edits, you know, good and bad, right? How can you lead when your shoulders are slumped over and you're not huddling and you got your head down? Like, we're not going to follow you here. We are showing them what's good and calling out what's bad and just trying to incrementally move them forward in terms of leadership. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome the head coach of Blair Academy and the USA Junior National Team at the most recent Nike Hoop Summit, Joe Mantegna. Coach Mantegna is here today to discuss radical truthfulness and transparency, the two-sided fast break, tying together transition and half-court offense, and we talk summer basketball camps, and pick and roll coverages during the always fun start, sub, or sit. For those looking to explore, connect, and grow this offseason, you can join coaches from over 30 different countries who've joined the SG Plus community. Learn and grow at your pace by getting access to thousands of hours of our best breakdown videos, deep dive newsletters, Q&A sessions, and inclusion in the private Coaches Corner community. Visit slappingglass.com for more information today. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Joe Mantegna. Coach, thanks so much for making the time for us. I know you got a lot on your schedule, and we're really looking forward to talking to you today. Absolutely. Pleasure to be here. I'm humbled to be here. In fact, I'm a slapping glass fanboy, so I'm ready to go. <laughs> Thank you, Coach. It's very nice to you. Thanks, Coach. Coach, so a lot to get into today. I want to start off the court with radical transparency, radical truthfulness coming from Ray Dalio with Bridgewater. He wrote a great book a couple of years ago, and it's something I know that you've implemented into your program. And so wanted to actually start with a quote from the book and then maybe have you jump in with the quote so we kind of get a semblance of what we're talking about. But in the book, he says, I learned that The more caring you gave each other, the tougher we could be on each other. And the tougher we were on each other, the better we performed and the more rewards there were for us as a group. When I heard that, it resonated with me. It gave me a vocabulary for what I believe in. And I think it's at the very heart and soul of building teams through love and accountability. What we always tell these guys is that they are going to get our truth every day. And you know, it's our truth, right? It doesn't mean they have to agree with it. It doesn't even mean we will end up being correct 100% of the time, of course, but we're not playing mind games. We're coming at it from a place of love. We're coming at it from a relationship of trust. And if we've built that love, we've built that trust, then hopefully we can tell each other the truth. And I think the growth pattern can get sped up when we're being truthful with one another, radically truthful, you know, not hurtful, but truthful. And so that's what we really built our program on for decades. And when I read the book, I was like, wow, he's smarter than me. And and that's (laughs) great vocabulary for what we do. And I just fell in love with that phrase. And it's something that I talk to families about when they come visit before they even decide to come be a part of our Blair basketball family. Coach, what did the implementation look like? Where did you begin, you know, with this idea of what, okay, this is what I want to do. This is what I want my program to be about. Well, I started with building rapport year one, 23 years ago, but the way it looks nuts and bolts and mechanics wise within our program is 
we have to get reps of this. Yes. You know, we end every time we're together with a circle of accountability where we hold each other accountable. And so I give these guys reps and holding each other accountable. They can hold the coaches accountable. And basically what our idea is before they leave the weight room, before they leave the track, before they leave the gym, sometimes we do it even after we have a team dinner, before we leave a space together, I don't want them going back to the dorms and talking out of turn or out of pocket about one another or about the exercise we just went through or about practice. So I said, if you have anything to say to one another, if you have anything to say to me, we as coaches usually, usually try to speak last. We will also say what we need to say to you. But then when we leave this space, we've moved on to the next thing. And that's how we sort of bring it to light. Now, does that always look and feel great? No. Our 16-year-old kids great at holding each other accountable in September of the first year there at Blair? Absolutely not. But just like Euro step finishing and just like shooting off the dribble behind a ball screen, they need repetitions of this kind of behavior. And so we give them the daily reps. I'm really interested in the circle of accountability. Could you give an example, like things that might come out in that circle that you as a group discuss and, and talk about it, say at the end of a weight session or practice? Yeah. I mean, you know, listen, 80, 90% of our circle of accountability, especially the last year, you know, four or five years, we've had great success. We've had great culture, you know, 80, 90% of it is lifting up the guy on the second team. Hey, I saw you took two charges today. Great job. Or, Hey, Devin, you did an unbelievable job leading the scout team today, getting them into the other team's actions without having to waste any time doing it. Or, a kid who got dunked on three times, you know, we see you working though, you know, we see how hard you're working, even though it didn't come to fruition. It's way more often uplifting the small things that guys do and, and they begin to value the winning plays and the winning behaviors and the winning things that are done daily. And when they start to understand and have a vocabulary for why you win and they can call each other out in a positive way about why they're making winning plays, then that reinforces winning. Of course, it can also be holding the best players accountable for their efforts. So it could be, hey, Johnny, you know, you weren't running back on defense today and we need you to run back on defense or, you know, you're not communicating our switches. You know, they struggle with it early. But again, you know, the older guys have done it before. So the older guys can model it and the younger guys can figure it out. And again, we try really hard as the adults in the circle to speak last and sometimes not to speak at all. And so this is, you know, very much a team-led, player-led situation. Is it completely open for anybody to talk or do you have certain people that you would like to speak or how does it start? Nah, man, totally open. We link arms. We are in a circle so that there's no one in front of the class and there's no power dynamic there. You know, we're in different places every day. I have to link arms with those sweaty guys after workouts <laughs> and they get me all, you know, feeling and smelling terrible. But, you know, sometimes it's a young guy that speaks up first. Sometimes it's the older guys. We don't even have captains until the end of the year. We don't name captains until after the year is over because we basically say, I'm not naming a captain. I'm going to name a captain at the end of the year, and that's going to be whoever acted like a captain. If you led, here's one of the places you can lead our team in this circle. It is very random. Sometimes I have to jump in and correct. You know, sometimes things aren't said perfectly, but life is sloppy, just like when we're putting in our offense, right? It's not going to be perfect every time. And as we get reps, it gets better and better. But at the end of the day, they're using a vocabulary for winning and they're reinforcing, hopefully, if we have a good culture what we're teaching daily and coming from peer to peer, a player led program, it's far more powerful than the old guy droning on in the middle of the circle. As a coach, if you're going to implement this, what is a coach, would you say you have to be prepared to maybe hear from your guys, you know, 
as a coach, the feedback you have prepared to receive? If I'm not ready to receive that feedback, and if I don't have the maturity to receive that feedback, or if I'm not working hard enough to grow my own coaching and my own skill set, then I better be ready to hear it. You know, if someone says to me, Hey, we've been doing the same shooting drills for four weeks, coach, and we're bored to death of them. Well, that's on me. And I need to hear that. Now, of course, I'm sure there's some young coaches and some up and coming coaches that may not want to hear that. But again, how healthy is your culture? If you can't be in the circle of accountability and hear it about yourself. And I would say, secondly, you know, we need to model a growth mindset as coaches. If I'm running the same drills year after year, the same offense, the same under OB plays, if I'm coming with the same feedback and I'm not growing, then I'm not modeling what I'm asking them to do daily anyway. And so then I deserve to be talked to as well. So no, we're ready for it. We're here for it. Occasionally it would be coach to coach, but most of that is done behind the scenes, but no, we're ready for that. We want that to be part of it. Another, I know, part of your program, and I might mispronounce it, but is Udita, is that correct? I might mispronounce it too, but yes, I think that's how we pronounce it. (laughs) I'd rather you mispronounce it. No, but (laughs) could you maybe give us a sense of what that word means and how that also plays a part in your culture? Sure. I mean, that's a Buddhist phrase that means the vicarious joy for the success of others. And so I'm fortunate enough to be in a situation where we may have anywhere from six to 10 future scholarship players in our gym as a prep school, a boarding school. You know, we have kids from all over the country and the world that play for us. Obviously, one of the things you have to worry about is selfishness. You know, everybody's trying to get recruited, chasing stats, et cetera. If you're going to be a successful team, you have to have guys who sacrifice. Well, along with that, you have to have guys who have literal joy to make the extra pass and see somebody else knock down the three, you know? to check out their man while the guard flies in and gets the rebound. And you don't get a number for that. You just did all the hard stuff, you know, to dive on the floor and tip the ball ahead. And the other guy gets a dunk that ends up on Instagram. So, you know, what we try to do again, name it, emphasize it. And then it leads to getting that behavior back in spades. And, you know, listen, my guys make fun of it, you know, oh, Mudita, you know, like, you know, we'll get it in the dining hall, you know, like, oh, Mudita, you're having a salad coach. But the bottom line is they're hearing it. They're learning it. I'm fine with the sarcasm and the fun, right? But the bottom line is the message is being sent. And again, if you can be unselfish and joyful as well as hold each other accountable, then I think from a culture standpoint, you're moving in the right direction. I'm fortunate enough to usually have pretty damn good players as well. So you throw talent on top of that. And then I think you're moving in the right direction. With the Modita, you as a staff, are there any ways that you guys try to also, I guess, kids that are showing those types of actions to bring that forth, whether it's a stat you highlight or whether it's something in practice, there's something that you guys do from a coaching standpoint. We do a lot of film edits of our bench. Okay. So that's one thing we do. We often splice in edits of our bench jumping up and down. And we especially love to splice in edits of our starters on the bench at the end of a 15 point win, jumping up and down when our sophomore, our freshman knocks down a three at the end of the game to take it from 18 to 21, a meaningless basket. And yet my high major division one guys are jumping up and down like we just went to the final four. So we try to emphasize it with film. And then the other place we emphasize it, you got to meet these kids where they are, social media, right? Like if you would go back and look at my Instagram, there's these great shots of our guys, you know, jumping on top of one another after a game, bench decorum, And we try to emphasize it through social media. I mean, I think, you know, I'm 52 years old, so I need to meet these kids where they are. You know, I have children that are older than the guys I'm coaching now. So, you know, again, if I can't be relevant with them and do some of my teaching via Instagram and via Twitter, then I'm probably not going to get to them. So, you know, that's another way we do it. Coach, I'd like to circle back to the leadership aspect. 
you mentioned you don't name a captain until the end of the season. But how does it look when the team's grasping the concepts of this radical transparency, the game application of the early season games when a clear leader hasn't emerged and there needs to be a clear leader in important minutes of the game and what that looks like and what then your role maybe is and how it changes as the season goes on in game. Listen, sometimes in game, I am not above saying, hey, fellas, figure it out. You know, find a solution. Don't call a timeout. When they're looking at me at a free throw, you know, I'll kind of say, hey, huddle, you know, figure it out. We're not calling a timeout right now. Now, you know, listen, I'm not getting fired, right? My job's not on the line. So it's easy for me to say if I'm a high major division one coach making 1.5 a year, I may not feel that way. I get it. Totally get it. But in my situation, I can only deal with my situation. I'm trying to find guys that will lead in the moment. And then what I'll do after they lead is I'll call them out about their leadership in public and say, that was leadership right there. What did he say in the huddle? And we'll talk about body language. We'll clip body language edits, you know, good and bad, right? How can you lead when your shoulders are slumped over and you're not huddling and you got your head down? Like, we're not going to follow you here. So, you know, I think we're trying to emphasize the good and we're trying to call out the bad and knowing that these are high school kids and they're figuring it out. And my guys are under a lot of pressure. They're trying to get recruited. Some of them have more social media followers than all of us combined. <laughs> well, probably not you guys now, but certainly, uh, you know, a hundred times more than I have. And so their high school lives are playing out in front of a lot more people than even, you know, when I had Luol Deng and Charlie Villanueva 20 years ago, you know, it was done in private. And now these guys' lives are played out. So we are showing them what's good and calling out what's bad and just trying to incrementally move them forward in terms of leadership. You've mentioned that you've you know, arrived at this, you know, radical transparency. I'm wondering about the process for you as a coach getting to this point, if it's something you've always been interested in and how you've always run your programs, or if there was something that changed in you as you got older as a coach to kind of arrive at this place. I think my wife and three children would probably tell you this is kind of who I am for better or for worse. I'm an extremely straight shooter and I'm a generation older than you guys. But as you get older, you know, you just don't have time, right? I just don't want to waste time with nonsense. I want to get right down to it. I want to get to what's important. I think as a young coach, what was hardest was trying to figure out what is important. I hear Brett Brown talk about what's the most important thing, right? Well, to me, when I, as a young coach, it's just really hard to figure out what is the most important thing. What should I be radically transparent about? What do I need to emphasize? I mean, I think now after you know coaching for 23 years as a head coach, at least I believe what I know to my program is most important. And so, I mean, I think to me, that's the hardest part, you know, because you have to decide what you're going to emphasize and what you're going to drill down on and what you're really going to be most truthful about. And that's, to me, was harder than the personality trait of being straightforward. The things that are important to you now, how did you arrive at those things? I don't think I'm smart enough to kind of figure it out. I think it's been organic. Uh -huh. You know, I think we've had a lot of winning teams at Blair and I was a part of some losing teams at the college level and was fired once, in fact, which was a wonderful growth experience, not exactly in the moment. <laughs> but I think, you know, Jeff Van Gundy always says, be an expert on your own team. I mean, I think really I've had to have a lot of tough reflection about what went well and what didn't go well. And even if we won 22 games, why didn't we win the state championship? And, you know, we have a couple teams in New Jersey we've had trouble with over the years and what do we need to do to get over those humps? So what I try to model for my guys and my assistant coaches is I want to look at myself first. Everything that goes wrong, I want to start with myself and everything that goes right. I want to start with how do the players make that happen? And I think if that's your mindset as a head coach, then you're going to figure out quickly what the most important things are in your program. 
Hey coaches, we'd like to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Instat. They have been hands down the biggest resource we've used in generating our content. Their expansive database of over 30,000 players and 7,000 teams gives us the access we need to scout, notice trends, and learn from some of the best coaches in the game today. So join coaches of all levels who are using Instat to better prepare for their opponents, self-scout, and develop their players. By going to instatsport.com form and entering the promo code SGPOD, coaches can receive one free month of Instat Scout and 10% off their subscription. That's SGPOD at instatsport.com form. Thanks again to Instat for their support. And now back to our conversation. Coach, we'd love to transition now to more on the court stuff. Want to talk about fast break, the two-sided fast break. I know that, you know, we've talked a little bit beforehand about how that's something that has really changed, you know, for you, the offensive side of the ball and how you guys run and get into your offense. So I want to start there with just your thoughts on the two-sided break and how that's transformed the program. You know, we stole it from Brett Tipton. So I want to make sure I give him credit. It's very rare that I go on YouTube and watch a video and one video kind of changes the sort of trajectory of my program, but it just resonated with me. I think it's a wonderful positionless way to play. And then I watch a lot of teams and I see them kind of running down the slots and transition and not playing with pro spacing. And I think they get in each other's way and I think the gaps get narrower. And and when we went to a wide spacing transition game, the gaps got wide. And then we just started talking about advantages, you know, and throw it ahead over half court and then just try to create an advantage and let the dominoes fall. And I have, as I said, talented players. I'd love to play multiple ball handlers at once. Then I don't have to say who's the point guard and who's the two and who's the three. We can be positionless. We can have great spacing. We can create gaps. And then it just gets down to decisions and advantages. And to me, that's a fun way to coach when you have talented players. And so it's been a real change to what we've done. And I think we've been a lot harder to guard since we've gone to that. Coach, what was your fast break style before? Yeah, I'd say it was more of like what you'd say would be a Carolina break. So we were running the trail to the top of the key and we were usually had a rim runner. And, you know, we would kind of play in what I used to call traffic. We allowed the point guard to play in both slots and kind of go across the grain, so to speak. If you watch Bob McKillop's Davidson's team, we kind of played like that. And I think it's a great way to play. It's obviously the way Roy Williams played for years and the version of it, the way Coach McKillop coaches. So, I mean, obviously it's a great way to play basketball, but I think when you play with wider spacing and transition, it allows us to have four different pushers and it allows us to play with our five man, so to speak. Either if he gets out in front, we let him rim run and seal. But then if he's in the trail, we play five out right in transition. So, and that's how we play half court offense a lot of times as well. It was also in keeping with our flow. Gosh, I mean, you know, as a former mediocre penetrating guard 30 years ago, I would have loved to get those big guys the heck out of the way and have some room to get downhill and drive and kick, you know? Absolutely. Coach, I guess, so everyone has reference as we move through this on a missed shot, let's say, where's everybody running to? in this two-side break? Yeah, so on a missed shot, the first two guys down the court are competing for the two corners. And then the third guard down the court is playing off of the ball. So if the ball is coming down the right slot, then the third guard is going to the 45-degree heels to the sideline, creating two guys on the opposite side of the ball. I hope that's clear enough. Yeah. You know, the other piece to this is the way we've played in the past, whoever gets the rebound can go unless it's sort of a less skilled five man. And then that guy will outlet the ball and we'll stampede that catch and go. But what we love about it is once we have the rebound, 
that guys can, you know, make those first three steps and really fill and compete for the corners. And we're trying to throw the ball over half court with a pass. And so again, it doesn't at my level get into who the point guard is because get the rebound, stampede it up the court, throw it ahead, either to the two side or up the sideline, but either way, and then we can attack in space. So, I mean, it's a wonderful way to play. Out of that, I know you want to get the ball if you want to drive and kick, but then what are some of the options or exits that you're getting into if the clear throw ahead advantage is not there? Right. So if we can't throw it ahead, we'll still look to get an advantage downhill with the pusher. But if we can't do that, then we have done four different things. You can get right into pistol action. You can get right into what the NBA guys would call delay action, where you throw it to the trailer. We get into drags and double drags. What I want to get into down the road, which we've dabbled with, but I, we haven't done a great job of is in a little wide pin and transition to. Those are kind of the four triggers that we work on. And honestly, like I like to let the guys organically go to what they liked. Like this year, my team loved pistol action and they loved to play out of middle drag. So that was mostly what we did. Other years we played out of wide pins and, you know, other years we played in more delay action. But this year, that's kind of what they like. And, you know, I want to coach what they like. I have a lot of moments in practice where I let them call the plays or them call the triggers and I see what they're calling more often. And then I'll kind of gravitate to what they like. The triggers, are they calling the plays or are they reading the point guard or where the ball goes that determines what action they're going to get into? We're usually hand signaling. Again, we're trying to throw it over half court and not run any triggers. If we dribble it across half court, then there's usually a quick hand signal, either a verbal and some of the gyms we play in, you can't hear. So we have to have hand signals with all this too, whether we're waving the wide pin or whether we're making a pistol or you know, whether we're calling over the drag. I mean, again, we're talking about simple stuff here, but that's the only time we get into triggers is when we dribble over half. Coach, I'm really interested in the pistol action. And what are the reads you're basically teaching? Because obviously what makes it so dangerous is the amount of, you know, you can play the handoff, not play the handoff, play the pick and roll, play the flare. What are the reads? What are the progressions that you were working with your guys to really master the pistol? Well, I don't know if we mastered it or not. That's the yeah. first thing. We do spend a lot of time, you know, three on O and three on three breaking down the pistol action. When we ran it a few years ago, we used to run it off the throw ahead and the handoff back. But on a high school court, it gets narrow. And we had trouble getting our guys to create enough width where we could then kind of get past the handoff. And we got kind of jammed up on the sideline. And that's where it started to fall apart. So this last iteration, we played more off the ball screen, the step up ball screen into the flare. And for us on a high school court with high school spacing, that seemed to work. And then we got into ghosting that step up. Yeah. And then we got into ghosting the step up into a flare where then we ran into a single side ball screen. And, you know, and then there's always, you can hammer on the weak side or 45 cut on the weak side. So this team just really liked that action. They grasped the 45 cut from the other side. They grasped the timing of the hammer, which is not easy. And I think the adjustment we made of not throwing it ahead and dribbling it ahead just made it easier on a high school court for us to run. With the timing of that ghost or step up, when's this play being called? Is this guy running from the corner? Or is it something like if you're calling it and then he's going to stop kind of at the 45 and wait? You know, what is the timing spacing you're looking for out of that three-man action? He's supposed to run to the corner. So we hope he makes it to the corner. 
And as you guys know, as coaches, you fight that, right? <laughs> yeah. Guys, yeah. you say, get to the corner and you look out and you say, you guys obviously didn't get through geometry because that's not the corner. <laughs> um, but if they got to the corner, then hopefully they're sprinting back up to set that, you know, foul line extended, or even a little higher step up. And if they get pace on that sprint, that's when that ghost, as you guys well know, I learned some of this from you guys and your videos. I mean, that ghost becomes real effective. It's, it's a sprint. So I think if they can get to the corner and then sprint back into the pistol action and ghost it, that gets really hard. And that creates a conflict of responsibility on those switches. And that's exactly what you want, you know, and that's when we turn the corner and and get into some of that other action on the weak side. And that's when that 45 cut is devastating, as you guys know. Yeah. Coach actually leads into my question about the second side or the opposite side and your thoughts on when you're running into these spots in the two-sided break and whether you're in pistol or whatever it is, what's the balance of you being as a coach wanting them to maybe play through that you know, first side where they're pushing it, play pistol, or do you want that thing reversed and play pistol on the other side or you know, whatever you do on a reversal? We get into a lot of reversals in our flow. Again, we're talking about transition here. In transition, I'm giving these guys the first 10 seconds of the shot clock to try to create an early advantage. And we use our transition, you know, kind of the way Rick Patino in the nineties uses press. Like we're trying to wear you out with our pace. And so if I say, Hey, we're trying to wear these guys out with pace. And then I say, we need to get it to the second side in our transition. Well, that becomes to me like secondary action. And that's not really what we're doing. I'm trying to get to an early advantage in transition. I'm trying to put people on an Island. I'm trying to create a conflict of responsibility early. If it gets to the second side, great to a hammer or a 45 or, you know, whether we even play through the trailer, all that's great. But like, I'm not trying to slow these guys down. And so while I understand the data, if you get to the second side, the advantages get bigger, I still want to be in attack mode. And I think the mentality of attacking early in a possession is valuable to us. We believe in that. We think other teams aren't going to make threes in the fourth quarter against us because our pace on offense is wearing them out, trying to keep up with us. Absolutely. You mentioned you gave them the first 10 seconds to create an advantage and to work through it at the 11th second. (laughs) If there isn't an advantage created, how do you then tie whatever they're running in the break into your main flow of offense? Well, I couldn't have answered this question about three years ago because I spent about 20 years trying to figure this out. And honestly, it was a real blind spot in my coaching. I couldn't figure it out. And I think when I talk to young coaches, there's a lot of us that can't figure out how to tie this stuff together. And sometimes in trying to tie, you know, sort of primary break or early secondary break to flow, I think, as you guys said, you, you can hold up your primary break. If you look at kind of Carolina action, right, they run the spots, you know, and it's, obviously incredible to all the Dean Smith stuff that we all grew. I grew up watching and admiring, but like, you know, that was almost like transitional plays. That's basically what I would call secondary, you know? So we've gone to a real simple four out, sometimes five out flow with, you know, we call it middle school rules. I mean, it's literally like flow rules you could put into a basketball camp. But again, I have talented players who are unselfish. And then we can just talk about decision-making, attacking long closeouts, cutting and playing off at two feet. And I would just add this one other thing about our flow. Like during the pandemic, I decided I was going to make like one phone call every week to somebody I respected and see if they jump on the phone with me. And because I have good players, they will jump on the phone with me. It's has nothing to do with me. Um, but, but I got my man, Mike Nardi on the phone at Villanova for one of those calls during the pandemic. And, you know, he was nice enough after beating my behind as a player back in the early 2000s to give me a little time. And at Villanova, they talk about you see chest, you pass. And you see arms, you finish, you know, and like that's Villanova. And, and I thought to myself, like, yeah, that's it. Like 
that's what I'm doing right there. Chest, get to two feet and pass and arms, get off of one foot and finish. And, you know, again, when you talk about stampeding long closeouts and reading chest and arms, I mean, that's how simple I've gotten. So as I've gotten more experienced, I've gotten more simple in our teaching. And I don't know if I answered the question. I, we got a little off. No, that's great. I, I, <laughs> I love it. Coach, talk about pace for a second and how it ties from your transition offense to your half-court offense. What is it that you emphasize or the advantages that you see in playing that way in beating maybe some of the best teams on your schedule? And then the second part is how it prepares them to play in a variety of styles of college, whether it's more slow it down or playing at that faster pace. We often have more depth than some of our opponents. So I think that plays into superior depth. I like to play eight, nine, even 10 guys sometimes. So pace allows me to play more guys. We ironically play quarter court defense 90% of the time. We don't press, trap, run all around, create a bunch of turnovers. So we create our fatigue in the other team, as I said earlier, through our offense. And the best defensive teams on our schedule, when we walk the ball up, and again, maybe this is you know my coaching, maybe our offensive execution isn't good enough, but when we walk the ball up and try to run our stuff against the best teams on our schedule, we don't score as high a rate as we do with big advantages early in transition. And so, you know, we are totally committed to pace. We're committed to shooting early in the shot clock. And then we're committed to tagging up on those early threes and getting in there and keeping balls alive and trying to gather up those long rebounds and those 50-50 balls. So to me, I think because we don't create pace with our defense, we like to create pace with our offense. And that's what we believe in. And I think that's sort of our brand now. And I would say the last piece from a prep school standpoint, you know, part of my job is to prepare these guys for the college game. And I think if they can play fast, both make decisions and have skill playing fast, then they obviously can do it playing slow in college for these college coaches that want them to walk it up. But I think when we're talking about our skill development, if you can do it fast, then it's easier to do it slow. And so that's yeah. kind of the last piece in their preparation for college. Coach, I want to take a quick tangent. You said something really interesting on tagging up on early threes. So on late threes, are you not tagging up, you know, or are you tagging up all the time? How do you get your guys to differentiate? I mean, I know Dan tried it. You know, it's very hard to get guys to always tag up and to constantly be reminding them. So if you're differentiating within a play, I'm just, I'm super curious to hear how that experiment has been. No, I hope Coach Fern from UNC Charlotte is not <laughs> listening to this pod. I'll tell you that because I hybrided the tagging up to the point where I, I, you know, it wouldn't be anything he would even recognize <laughs> as someone who's introduced it to the U.S. game. But this year we tagged up with what would be effectively two, three, and four on any Good. shot. I said that I love the idea that we do tag up on early threes because even with early threes, a lot of times, you know, our offensive rebounding percentage was almost 30% on those early threes, we're tracking a lot of them down. And so my point is, you know, we look at those as a way to just get to more offense. So we hybrid tag up, we tag up sort of two, three, four, we send our point guard back and we let our five man just go. Like he's not worried about playing on the top side okay. or scrumming or any of that stuff. He just goes because a lot of times he's in the dunker or he's already rolled. It's been a hybrid, but what it's done for us is as I looked at my team in the past, we would shoot a three and I'd have these great athletes standing on the three-point line watching. They wouldn't be getting back and they wouldn't be offensive rebounding, even though we told them to offensive rebound. But when we named it and we held them accountable with film daily and we said, you need to get on the top side, especially if you're coming in from the weak side corner, the weak side 45, we got to it. And this year 
it changed our whole program. And frankly, we didn't shoot the ball very well this year from three, but we offensive rebounded like crazy. And that's just because we gave it a name. We sent three guys to the top side every time, and we were able to get a lot out of that. But it's not the classic tag up. I want to be clear about that. You know, I mean, (laughs) I couldn't get it right with the five guys tagging that I couldn't get to that. So I decided to sort of make it our own. We won't tell Coach Fern if he's listening. We did the same thing where we had to do a hybrid for some of those same reasons. Yeah. I want to get back to the pace that we were talking about. And in any game, no matter, it's always like a battle of styles and who can maybe impose their will. So when maybe a team is doing a good job slowing your pace in the huddles or in the timeouts, what are you telling your guys to put your pace or put your imprint on the game and play the way you guys want to play and not be dictated by the other team? Well, there's two things that are going to slow us down, right? One thing is if we're taking it out of the basket every time. Yeah. Yeah. If we're not competing defensively, the other team's having a great shooting night or, you know, there's a guy who's crushing us. I mean, when we're taking it out of the net, it's easy to slow us down. I mean, you know, we'd like to score two or three baskets a game on makes in transition, but that's going to slow us down. And then the other thing that slows us down is us, the first three steps. You know, there'll be games when we're flatter and, and our guys just aren't running. And so, you know, because we have really willing passers, we'll throw it ahead, but if there's nobody to throw it ahead to, and so that's the other thing we're highlighting in huddles, like, yo, get out, like the first three steps, we're trying to throw it ahead and there's nobody there. Like you guys are buddy running, you're side by side, you're not getting to the corners, you're pulling up early. That's Mm going to slow our transition down as well, or that we're not rebounding, you know, either we're, we're taking it out of the net or we're getting beat on the offensive glass ourselves. So, you know, those are the three things that slow us down and, you know, we need to gang rebound. And we need to get stops and then we need to sprint and not jog. If we can do those, we'll be able to get out more often than not. Coach, on the buddy running, if two guys happen to, because it happens, right? Two guys are on the same side. What do you want those two guys to do with your break? One run through, stay the corner. Like, How do they figure out not being next to each other? The delay guy will slow up. So we're going to let the guy get to the corner. We're not going to run by. And we're going to slow up. What also happens in the two side break a lot is that you have three guys on one side, right? Cause it's not ballet. And my buddy, Scott Morrison, who was a Celtics assistant who's now at Perth. He would tell me to send the middle guy through. Okay. That's what we did when we would end up with three guys, the middle guy would have to recognize he's in the middle and he would cut through to the other side. Because again, that happens. Occasionally we'd hold them over on the three side and that would set up a great open side drag right. and pop. So I would tell the point guard, if we had a three side and they didn't recognize it, then get yourself into an early drag and you got the whole side of the court to operate. Somewhere in my mind, I'm thinking that we're going to have a three side call at some point and just get everybody out of the way, but we haven't gotten there yet. I'll leave that up to people smarter than me to do that. (laughs) Coach, I love the sending the middle guy through. Why send the middle instead of say the corner and float everyone down? I'm not sure. Okay. I think that probably... The spacing is wider if you send the middle guy through is what I would imagine. Although you certainly, there's less buddy running if the middle guy goes through because then the spacing left is wider. I think that's probably why you should send the middle guy through. Okay. So coach, my kind of last one here with the transition is just from a teaching standpoint for maybe coaches listening to this, if they're going to implement a two-sided break next year, what are the things as you've taught this that would be something like you need to blow the whistle, you need to get on them about like that they need to know about when you're trying to teach it that can kind of hang up a good two-sided break? Yeah, no, that's a great question. The buddy running is huge. That happens all the time. The stopping before the corner is huge. We've mentioned that already. The other thing that is big is the five-man being in the way. So the five-man, the way we do it, either needs to rim run if he's out early 
or if he's behind the play, he needs to trail. And what sometimes happens with hard playing bigs is that they're behind, but they try to kind of catch up. And what they do is they get in between the ball and the diagonal pass to the two side. And, you know, I had a seven foot South Sudanese kid this year. And when he's in the way, he's really in the way, (laughs) you know, he's seven feet tall. So it's a good problem to have. It means your bigs are trying to run and get involved, but it's the one time you're telling your guy like, Hey, you need to be behind the ball here. We need to have that passing angle to throw it diagonally across the court. So that's one that we were a little surprised by. And the other thing is the point guard sometimes getting out on the sideline, like you want the ball to be in the slot because then the pass is a little shorter. If you're trying to throw the ball from the right sideline to the left 45 on a diagonal, it may take too long to get there. So they need to be in the slot with the ball. Okay. You know, even a dribble or two, sometimes in the middle of the court, just to shorten that two side pass is fine. Well, coach, this has been awesome so far. We want to move now to a segment that we call start, sub, or sit. And for those listening, maybe for the first time, we're going to give you three different basketball topics, ask you to start one, ask you to sub one, and then ask you to sit one. And then we'll discuss from there. So coach, if you're ready, we will jump in here with this. Ready to go. Okay. Sounds good. And those listening too, you do not know these questions at all. These are completely first time you were hearing them. And so we'll have some fun. All right, coach, this first theme for start sub sit has to do with running summer basketball camps. You're someone that for years has run successful basketball camps all over the world. And these three different topics we'll talk about can be potentially the most important and also maybe more difficult things in running and starting a successful summer basketball camp. So your start would be the thing you think is most important in setting this up. So start, sub, or sit, hiring a great staff, the marketing of the camp, or the camp logistics. So understanding how long to do drills, when to go to lunch, when to come back from lunch, all the things that go in the day-to-day operations of a camp. So start, sub, or sit, successful summer basketball camps. Start logistics. Okay. I only do half day camps with young kids. They have the attention span of fleas. <laughs> My father ran Dave Cowens' basketball camp, the Celtics Hall of Famer for years. You can't get into lunch and pools and dances and kids hanging out in the quad. You can't get into any of that. It needs to be all basketball. So that's logistics. 8.30 to 12, no meals, no pool, no hanging out. That's when the trouble begins. Okay, so logistics first. I would sub staff for sure. Obviously, you have to have a great staff. And if you run a great camp with great logistics, it helps that my children can do my Instagram marketing, but I think that's the sit. Okay, good stuff there, Coach. Coach, my first follow-up is your experience with drill work. How much drill work do you do? Should it be stationed? Should it be we all work on one skill together? How much, how long before you should then you know, let them play. They just let them get up and down. I mix the drills in with decision-based drilling. So, you know, I don't like to do all on-air drilling. Of course, when you're dealing with third graders dribbling a ball, no, you're not going to be able to get it right into decisions. <laughs> but, you know, I think what you want to do at camps is give kids a buffet, right? Like you're not going to change their game in four mornings, but I look at it like a salad bar. They need to understand that, you know, it's okay to throw a one-handed pass. And here's how you do an inside-out dribble. And this is what a flare screen is, even if you can't quite execute it yet. So to me, it's like a buffet. Hopefully they'll come back to camp. Hopefully they'll jump on YouTube. Maybe, you know, they'll get some more of that at another camp that summer. So I do think you need to drill and I don't want kids coming to any of my camps where they walk away that they didn't learn anything, but 
The flip side is you certainly need to entertain. The attention spans have never been shorter. And you understand you have different clientele. Like we run an elite camp where it's real serious, high level teaching. And then we run our day camps where it's, you know, you're entertaining. But I'm going to give them an hour every morning of teaching. I want them to leave and tell their parents that they learned something while they were there as well as, you know, got to compete and run around. I'm even more conscious of it on the backside of a pandemic, right? When we got back to our camps last summer, but these kids have been cooped up and you want to make sure that you're not sucking the life out of them at your basketball camp for sure. Absolutely. Your sub, hiring a staff, you know, things you look for in getting a great staff together to teach, to grow as coaches too. Obviously it's a great place to kind of get reps as a coach in the summer. So can you talk about the staff? Yeah. I mean, I want to have a couple of my main men that I know I can count on. And if I'm walking in the other gym for an hour, everything's going to be fine. And then I'm hiring for energy and opportunity for the rest of the staff. You know, I want young guys that are energetic and I want people that are excited about getting the reps. You know, we all remember when we were 19, 20, 21 years old, getting our first reps, you know, out in front of 10 kids, trying to teach them how to throw a chest pass. We remember that. And I just want energetic, high-spirited guys that love the game and they want reps. That's what I want the rest of my staff to be. And when we have that, guys and gals, when we have that, it'll go great. If I have to do the bulk of the teaching with my main assistant coach, then that's fine. We can do that. But if they're bringing energy and love, we're in good shape. Hey, coaches. This segment of Start, Sub, or Sit is brought to you by our friends at Practice Planner Live. Practice Planner Live has combined all the components of effective, efficient, and time-saving practice planning into one easy-to-use platform, saving your most valuable resource as a coach, time. Ditch the Word docs and the scribbled legal pads for a simple point-and-click experience to build your drill directory, collaborate with your staff, and create clean, customized, and shareable practice plans in minutes. With over 75,000 practice plans created at the professional, collegiate, high school, AAU, and youth levels, Practice Planner Live is proven to raise the level of organization and effectiveness of any program. Listeners of the podcast can visit practiceplannerlive.com and register for a free 21-day trial and enter the promo code SGPOD to get 10% off your subscription. Thanks for listening. And now back to our conversation. All right, coach. Our next one has to do with recruiting. And I mean, we know you've been on both ends of it as a college coach recruiting. And now with you're fortunate enough to have some top talent. So you're seeing them being recruited. So our question has to do with when one of your players comes back from a recruiting trip and what is it that they're talking about? What is it that they're saying? Yeah, this was a great trip. Is it the school, the facilities, the players on the team or the staff, the relationship they built with the coach or the assistant coach? Yeah, I think I would start the staff. And I always tell them the relationship with the head coach is the most important thing. As much as you might like the assistant, he's trying to get another job as he finishes up your recruiting weekend, you know? So let's not get too tied into these assistant coaches. So I think I would start that. The facilities and the arms race of some of these places is certainly can be overwhelming to a kid. I mean, some of these high major spots are like the Taj Mahal, you know, so that is a close second for sure. And then, you know, now more than ever, I would sit the players because you don't know who's going to be there the next year with the portal. So, you know, it used to be, I used to say like, you know, is there a guy you could see mentoring you? You know, you're going to be the point guard of the future. Like what's the point guard who's there now? Like, you know, we do talk about the decisions the guys on the team are making, are they out doing drugs and chasing girls all night? And, you know, what's going to be the ethos of the team? 
but it's less about who the players are now because, you know, I, as the coach and them trying to figure out the best school, we used to talk about roster construction all the time. And now it's irrelevant. I mean, I've had multiple high major coaches tell me, head coaches tell me, listen, man, this is the G league now. Like every year we're trying to put together our best team, like all thoughts of family and culture and loyalty. Like this is the G league now, and we're not going to try to pretend that we're anything we're not. And I respect that, but that's why you can't worry about who's there because you don't know if they're going to be there the next year. And you simply don't know who's going to, they're going to take off the portal a week after you're there. So you just got to find the right fit. And I've been telling guys, they maybe need to think about going, you know, a level lower than they would have three or four years ago. You know, where yeah. go where you can play, go where you can be in the top eight early on. And then if you're good enough, you can transfer up. But to go to the highest level and think that they're going to wait around to develop you, again, they're very capable of developing you, but they have no reason to wait for you. And I'm not mad at them about it. It's not a value judgment. You know, they're getting paid a lot of money to win. So the landscape has changed tremendously. Coach, that's actually my follow up with you helping your players and maybe trying to point them in directions or you know, some red flags that you think they should be concerned about or follow up on when they come back to you and they tell you maybe what how this he was telling me this, or like when they're telling the, your player, like their vision, their plan for them, what are some things maybe you'll push back on, or you'll tell the kid, like, I would follow up on this or, you know, don't bank on that. Maybe that they're just telling you things you want to hear. Well, that goes all the way to the back to the beginning of the pod now, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That's that <laughs> radical transparency we're talking about. I'm not here to crush anybody's dreams. I'm not here to keep them from going to a school that they might want to go to. But I do think with full empathy, it's my responsibility as their coach and mentor to talk truthfully about what I think the opportunities are. You know, we've had kids that are being recruited. You know, a coach will say, we're recruiting you to be a wing. And, you know, I know the kid can't be a wing at Blair Academy, let alone be a wing at a high major school. Like we all know he's going to be not a wing. I feel okay about saying you're a long ways from a wing. You understand being a wing means you can guard a wing in the SEC, right? You think you can guard that guy you just watched on TV Saturday coming off with two staggers? <laughs> and by the way, do you think you can rise up and hit a three in transition? Because that's what a wing in the SEC needs to do. You're a long ways from being a wing. So those kind of conversations happen all the time, but they need to be had after a long relationship and with full yeah. empathy, because I'm not trying to take anybody's dreams and they're high school kids. They're not fully formed. They can make incredible growth over the course of the next five or eight years. So we're not trying to put ceilings on people either. Coach, our last start supper sit for you. We've themed this, the keep it simple, stupid question or the, the kiss you know, philosophy of you know, what's something that it's just better to keep it simple in your mind. And we're going to stay on the defensive side of the ball here. So start sober, sit these three different areas on the defensive side that you're obviously going to work on them, but you prefer to have a simpler approach than not. So start sober, sit rebounding, defensive rebounding, closeouts, teaching closeouts, or your pick and roll coverage. Oof. I think I would start rebounding. I think that is just a will thing. We do talk about technique and technique on different spots on the floor, but I think that is largely will, and I don't want to overcoach it. And frankly, I think we coach it to make ourselves feel better. But at the end of the day, it's an effort and a will thing. The other two, I guess I would sub closeouts, though we have three different kinds of closeouts. I listened to the coach from France last week or the week before talk about closing out right and left. I'm not there yet, Okay, <laughs> but you know we have the Steph Curry closeout and we have the KD closeout and we have the Rondo closeout. And so one of our big scouting things is deciding what kind of closeout each guy is. And I think at the high school level, that's probably appropriate. And I think that helps them when they get to college. And then I would sit ball screen coverage. I think 
for me to prepare guys for college, they need to be able to understand multiple ball screen coverages. We went to icing side ball screens a few years back. It's changed everything for us defensively. I'm trying to decide what ball screen coverages we're going to use with this Nike Hoop Summit team right now and you know that I'm going to be coaching later on. So I think that needs to be taught at a more technical aspect. And I think that needs to be dug into a bit. Coach, I want to follow up on your ball screen coverage. And you mentioned you went to ice and now you're trying to figure out what to use for the hoop summit. I know it's always a mixture of things, but what factors do you weigh the most? Is it what your team is capable of, or maybe predominantly your big, or is it what scares you the most as far as what can punish you corner threes, the rim roll or the ball handler that factors into what coverage you want to play? a really good question. I think first it's our personnel. I mean, I think everything we do at Blair offensively and defensively needs to start with our personnel. So do we have a guy who can drop and rim protect? Do we have physical guards that can get up in people's hips and take them away from the screen? What's the mentality? Um, how many guys can switch? We like to recruit switchable teams. So we like to switch, you know, one through four and even sometimes one through five if we can. So I definitely would start with our personnel. Okay. If we go to your opponent at the high school level, would you say then it's more what the ball handler is capable of that's going to scare you the most or the role, or like I said, maybe kick out threes, you know, then being able to dish it and read the shake action. Yeah, it's definitely the ball handler. I mean, we're in New Jersey. This is guard heaven here. I mean, there's high major New Jersey guards on every team we play. And, you know, we used to do a lot of hard hedging and that kind of thing. And it was just putting two guys on one against high major New Jersey guards and the best teams on our schedule. It never worked out real well. And that was, you know, again, we talked about self-assessment and where was I losing games for my team? Well, I thought, you know, looking back on, I thought I lost a handful of games for us tactically by being in the wrong ball screen coverage a few years back. I just, we couldn't contain these jitterbug Jersey guards. They were turning the corner against our hard hedge, beating two guys, getting downhill. We're giving up corner threes. We're giving up lob dunks. We're giving up everything. And then the guys are looking at me and I had to look at myself in the mirror and say, we need to do something different here. And so we've gone to sort of weaking the middle ball screens and icing on the sides. And it's given us some answers and it's given us some solutions and it's been better. And this year we went to a little ice to switch at times or ice to blitz at time. And then that gets into some funky stuff and you can start to dictate to these guards a little more than them just dictating to us. So that's kind of my rationale. I don't know if that's right, but that's my rationale. (laughs) (laughs) Coach, I'd love to follow up on the ice to switch. Can you talk a little bit about, see that a little bit where, you know, there's a certain maybe area on the floor, whether it's a free throw line or they get below that, then they're going to switch. And can you talk, I guess, a little bit about, you said you've done that and how that's worked out and maybe some of the areas that they know to switch or what the call is. Yeah. Well, so it's crazy. We iced to blitz a fair amount this year and I had a postgraduate division two stretch four who I played at the five and he was like having a 25 year old European pro on my team. He would change our coverages in the middle of possessions. And if he knew it was the team's backup point guard and we had him stuck on the side and we were icing him, he'd black the ice on his own. And it was literally like, I felt like I was coaching a European pro. It's like the guys I coached for South Sudan the summer, like this kid was at that level understanding the game. So we would ice to switch off of scouts occasionally. And that would usually be below the foul line. But the ice to black, the ice to blitz was what we got a lot out of. And again, it would usually be against the team's backup point guard. 
And it would usually be when we had him kind of stuck on the sideline in a precarious position. And I'm not sure I'll ever have another X5 that can change ball screen coverages at the high school level in the middle of possessions. But we had a dude that could do it this year and the guards listened to him. So he made me look like a good defensive coach at times when I didn't even call it. So <laughs> Love that. With the ISA switch coach, if you're going to implement it, the coach is doing it. What was like the next step that you had to solve on that switch or that kind of situations you found your guys in that then was like, okay, how do we address this? Well, if they roll you out of that switch, you have a guard kind of fronting a five, say if the screener was a five. So you're probably still bringing a tag over. Mm -hmm. And like, to me, if you're switching, you're switching so you don't have to engage a third defender, right? Yeah. And so the reason I didn't love that against like a, a physical five, and we wouldn't really do it in that position is because still you're engaging a third defender at that point. I don't want to engage a third defender if we're switching. I want to try to switch like sizes. We weren't as positionally big this year. So switching is a little more difficult, but at the high school level, they often don't punish you on the roll, even when a big is rolling a guard out. And when you're iced to switch, you can be in a front if they roll you out. And so that's what I thought was good about it. However, if we are trying to front a 6'10 guy, then we often had to bring a guy over anyway. And at that point, why switch if you have to engage a third defender? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The ice to black is what I love. The ice to blitz is like something that is just uh, Steve Clifford, my mentor, talks about, you know, with drop coverage, you need to vary the drop depth. And so, you know, when you have a kid that begins to understand that, hey, we want to vary the depth of the drop. And now we're icing and he comes up and he can make a quick black call and just jump it. That random defensive action is really hard to prepare for. Yeah. On varying the drop, the depth, how are you working on that? You know, where does it have to start? What was the most important then to get your big to be able to vary the depth, be successful, or also then get out to that blitz and that black? Well, obviously he would never call the, the blitz if he wasn't up high, almost yeah. up to touch. You know, we would talk about varying the depth based on who the ball handler was. And then obviously who you are as a defender. We had a seven foot kid from South Sudan, Luol Manyang, who would drop deep and really could cover the rim. He had kind of NBA length. And then, like I said, we had a couple undersized bigs. And they didn't actually have great feet, but they were smart and understood angles. And they were the guys that would really vary their depth. And so come up to touch, halfway back, all the way back. I just think you need to give these good guards different looks. If you change the patterns, mm -hmm. you know, it makes it a little harder for them to make the read. And I think when I coach at the FIBA level in the summer, we talk about that as well a lot because those FIBA guards, the African guards are so good. And, you know, we have so much length with our South Sudan team and it's just, you know, let's give them different looks up the touch all the way back. You know, they're going to shoot the floater one time, you know, where's the lob going to come from? And I think that just without changing your coverage, it, it changes up the patterns and it changes up what the guard sees. As we're recording this, you're about to coach the Hoop Summit head coach there, and you likely you know don't have as much time to implement and teach as you do at Blair Academy, the pick and roll coverages and all the nuances. With a shorter window of teaching pick and roll coverages, where do you start? Is there five on five? Is it two on two? Is it three on three? How do you you know, try to get them up to speed as quickly as possible with whatever coverage that you plan to use. Well, one of my other mentors, Alan Keen, and I were on the phone today talking about that, in fact, and he gave me a great piece of advice. Why don't you engage these guys who you don't have a deep relationship with, you don't have a rapport with, engage them, ask them how they want to guard ball screens. How do you guard ball screens with your high school team? What are you most comfortable with? And then I think have the flexibility to change. My coaching staff and I have already talked about, we'll probably start this way and that way, but you know, we're going to need to be ready to pivot on day two. If it doesn't go well, day one of practice, day two, we may need to pivot. So 
listen, for someone like me, it's unnerving in these small windows. You know, I'm a culture family relationship guy. And all of a sudden you're coaching guys. You don't know that well. You don't know their strengths and weaknesses that well. You don't know their personalities that well. It taxes you and you got to be really malleable. And I think Alan's advice is really good. Like go to them and get their buy-in and have them, you know, talk to us about what they're most comfortable with. And then, you know, they'll have more ownership of it if they had part of the choice of how we're going to guard some of this. So I plan to take these future NBA draft choices and engage them in a conference room and talk through some of this stuff. I have my ideas about how I want to play, but I want to get their buy-in. And then with Blair Academy, when you're implementing pick and roll coverages, how do you kind of start teaching there? Is it whole part whole or how do you get to speed there? Yeah, it's whole part whole. And and obviously, you know, we're going to have multiple guys on the court that know what we're doing, but yeah, we're going to teach it whole. And then we spend time breaking it down two on two and three on three, you know, and we're trying to also teach offense while we're doing that. So when we're working on the tag, you know, we're teaching the guard to read the tag, right? Yeah. We're talking about the shape up. So you know, we're doing a lot of that three on three work, three on two ball screen work that way. But, you know, I will say sort of big picture too, like I'm trying to disrupt myself every spring and I'm trying to disrupt them. So we've had a real good five-year window here. We've won a bunch of games and a bunch of championships, but like, I'm trying to do things differently every spring and summer. And I'm coming back to them like, Hey, this is what we're doing. I saw Phoenix do this. Like, let's think about this, you know, let's change this. Like, I don't want to get stagnant. I want to be intellectually curious about the game. I use your guys' platform as one of the ways that I do it. Thank you. And I also want to show our guys that we're not satisfied. We may have just gone 22 and five, but you know what? I want to go 27 and 0 next year. And I'm trying to get this thing better. I'm trying to be better as a coach and I need you guys to be better. And so the constant disruption, I think, is the way we all grow. And I'm just a huge believer in that. We disrupt more after good seasons and we just had a good season. So we plan for more disruption, good disruption this spring and summer. Great stuff, Coach Full. You are off the start, supper, sit, hot seat. Thanks for playing. That was a lot of fun. Thank God. I'll tell you, <laughs> that was unnerving. I tried to bribe you guys to give me the questions. You didn't go for it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you just needed to add a couple more zeros. You know, then we would have been off. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Coach, thank you for that. So we got one more question for you. Before we do, thanks for coming on and spending time. This has been really fun for us. It's been absolutely my pleasure. Real honor to be on. You guys are doing a great service to the basketball community and all of us basketball nerds. Can't thank you guys enough for all that you're doing because we appreciate it. It's what we talk about. We compare the pod. We share it back and forth. So you guys are doing great work. It's much appreciated. Thank you, Coach. Thank you, Coach. Appreciate that. Coach, our last question for you. What's one of the best investments that you've made in your career as a coach? Yeah, I would say two things. I mean, I would say one that I, I didn't invest in it, but you know, my wife allowed me to chase my dream for 20 some odd years. And she made a lot of personal sacrifices in her life to allow me to chase it. And she's been incredibly supportive of me every step of the way. I mean, you know, you just can't do it without that kind of support. I would say the other investment was I spent my 20s as a college basketball coach. I thought about it earlier today. I think I made $56,000 in eight years. I was a restricted earnings assistant. I was a volunteer assistant. I ran baseball card shows to raise money. I swept the floors, intramurals, you know, did film breakdowns, slept in the office, the whole thing. And, you know, there was the 27th of many months where I was eating saltines and, you know, Lipton soup. 
And I don't say that flippantly, but all the decisions I made in my 20s were from my passion for basketball, my desire to grow as a coach. I wanted to get reps and I was around like these incredible coaches that mentored me and took care of me and allowed me to grow and make a lot of mistakes. And frankly, I wish I had added more value than I did looking back on it. But, you know, making decisions about growth and about reps and about relationships over money in my 20s was, I think, the foundation for what's allowed me to have the success that I've been fortunate enough to have at Blair. And I wouldn't give up those saltines and Lipton soups for anything. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Oh, do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. Let's roll. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs>